Hello, and welcome to the Foot School Podcast. I'm Andy Brummage. This week, we bring you part two of our podcast series, Kids Ask, Teachers Answer. We had so many great questions that we couldn't fit them all into a single episode, so we're doing an encore. Students submitted a grab bag of questions about science, world history, nature, the English language, and technology, so we hope you'll learn something new today. So, let's get started. We begin with a science question that I used to think I knew the answer to. Hello, my name is Eli and I'm in fifth grade, and this is my question. Walking to the bus stop one morning, we saw a pink sunrise. Some days the sunrise is orange or purple. What decides the colors of sunrises and sunsets? Thanks for your question, Eli. Uh, This is Mr. Z. I teach science to third, fourth, and fifth grade. And there's a lot of interesting science behind the colors in the sky, which all have to do with light. First, the light we see or are used to every day, the light that comes from the sun, is what scientists call white light. That's actually a mixture of all of the different colors that light can possibly be. We only see those colors when they bounce off of an object of a certain color or pass through something that lets one color through. The other interesting thing about white light is that it can get bent or scattered by the different molecules in the atmosphere. When that happens, the colors in white light actually separate a little bit. During the day, usually the sky appears blue because that's the color that scatters the most. It reaches us down on Earth, and so we see the sky as blue. The other colors kind of just scatter around in the atmosphere, and they never reach our eyes. Sunrise and sunset are a little bit different, though, because the sun is lower in the sky. It's at more of an angle, and the light passes through more of the atmosphere because the sun is uh, not so directly above us. When that happens, the light actually hits more molecules, and more colors are able to be scattered to our eyes. That's why at sunrise and sunset, we see different colors like pinks, purples, and oranges. The exact color we see any given sunset or sunrise depends on just how many molecules the light scatters off of. So if you are catching your ride to school a little bit earlier or later, and the sun is a little lower or higher in the sky, that can make a difference. If the day is cloudier or foggier, or if there are just other materials in the atmosphere, like smoke from chimneys or high pollen counts. All of those things contribute to the different colors we see at different sunrises and different sunsets. Sixth graders at foot learn about countries and cultures around the globe as part of their curriculum called Exploring the World. And we received a couple of great questions that dovetail nicely with that work. My name is Lucy, I'm in sixth grade, and my question is, who found out the world is not flat? Hi, I'm Sheila Levy, and I teach seventh grade humanities. Lucy, that's a great question. Since the time of the ancient Greeks, it has been known the earth was round. It's likely Pythagoras who first proposed that the earth was round sometime around 500 BCE. He based his idea on the fact that he had shown the moon must be round by observing its orbital cycle. Then he reasoned that if the moon was round, then the earth must be round as well. Around 350 BCE, Aristotle asserted that earth was a sphere. So the fact that the earth is a sphere or round was well known long before Columbus. My name is Esther. I'm in sixth grade, and my question is, who made the first world map, and what did it look like? Hi, I'm Trevor Rosenthal. I teach sixth grade humanities. 
And I'm Laura Anderson, and I also teach sixth grade humanities. Interesting questions, Esther. The sixth grade curriculum includes geography, and the students study the countries of the various inhabited continents. We also study many travelers and explorers. Thanks to their journeys, humans discovered what the world actually looked like. But for hundreds, if not thousands of years, people divided the world into what was the known area and the scary unknown. In the past, before scientific discoveries, people were quite superstitious and fearful, so they considered the unknown to be inhabited by mythical beasts. In Around the World in 100 Years by Jean Fritz, she writes, It was common knowledge that the unknown sucked you under or burned you up or simply left you to rot in nowhere. For many years, people thought the world was flat and were afraid that they would fall off if they traveled too far. The original question, who made the first world map, is not as simple to answer as you might think. For example, if you were to Google it, you might find that the ancient Babylonians were the first to make a map, doing so on clay tablets around 600 BCE, as many map makers would later do. They considered themselves to be at the center of the world. So they depicted Babylon, which is modern day Iraq, and the Euphrates River as rectangles in the middle of their map. Their neighbors, Assyria and Susa, were shown as small circular blobs. Beyond that, there were triangular shapes which were meant to represent far off islands with mysterious labels such as beyond the flight of birds and a place where the sun cannot be seen, according to history.com. There was a Greek scholar known as Ptolemy He is generally considered the father of geography because he wrote a textbook that was eight volumes long entitled Geography Around 150 A.D. Ptolemy was the first to place north at the top of the map and east at the right-hand side. He used his knowledge of astronomy and mathematics to create his maps. He also divided the sphere into grids of latitude and longitude, which was intended to help navigators. For hundreds of years, people believed that Ptolemy's maps were lost. But in 1406, a map of his was rediscovered, and he became known as the, quote, authority. Consequently, we do know some things about what early maps looked like. For example, Ptolemy included the continents of Africa, Europe, and Asia. The Americas had not yet been discovered by Europeans and were consequently excluded from any early maps. This is why you sometimes hear the terms Old World to refer to Africa, Europe, and Asia, and New World to refer to the Americas. Today, we understand that many of Ptolemy's calculations were wrong. For example, according to our textbook, Around the World in 100 Years, he estimated that the circumference of the Earth was 18,000 miles, which is only three-fourths of its actual size. Another error he made was that he placed the equator 400 miles too far to the north. But we give him credit for trying to make a systematic picture of the world based on scientific and mathematical principles. He also identified an impressive 8,000 places. There's so much to learn about. Geography is the study of places and physical features of the earth. Did you know there's actually a word for the science or practice of drawing maps? It's called cartography. We encourage you to explore both subjects more. Here's an interesting question about fruits and vegetables. A little something for the gardeners among us who are daydreaming of spring.
My name is Lexi, I'm in fourth grade, and my question is, how do fruits and vegetables grow into something we can eat, though all they use is sun, water, and nutrients from the ground? Hi, I'm Kim Burge-Lieberman, and I am a science and wellness teacher here at Foot. Thank you for being curious, Lexi. I love this question for so many reasons. One of the things that I find interesting about this question is that scientifically, or botanically speaking, there is no such thing as a, quote, vegetable. Everything we refer to as a vegetable is really another plant part. Anything with a seed is a fruit of the plant. People tend to know that apples, peaches, and blueberries are fruits, but so are tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, butternut squash, snow peas, an ear of corn, and anything else with a seed. Technically, anything in nature that holds a seed is a fruit, even if it's not edible, such as a milkweed pod, but don't try eating just any fruit in nature. For health and wellness conversations, we certainly should use the term fruits and vegetables, but in botanic terms, this word vegetable doesn't exist. Some quote vegetables that don't hold seeds and therefore aren't fruits are other plant parts. For example, celery is the stem of the plant. Kale, lettuce, and spinach are the leaves. Broccoli, artichoke, and cauliflower are the flowers. Potatoes and sweet potatoes are tubers or roots. The other part of your question that I love is thinking about the amazing process of photosynthesis. Plants can make their own food using only water, carbon dioxide, the green pigment chlorophyll, and sunlight. While we usually take this for granted, it is an amazing process. Imagine how much time, energy, and money humans could save if we could make food from hanging out in the sun with just a few non-living molecules. To walk through the scientific process, let's take a common molecule found in plants, cellulose, and walk through how the non-living or inorganic molecules of carbon dioxide and water become this more complex molecule the plant can use. Cellulose, commonly known as fiber when we're talking about health and wellness, makes up each cell wall of almost every plant cell. Cellulose is essentially a bunch of glucose molecules linked together, and glucose is the simple sugar that's produced during photosynthesis. Glucose is also known as C6H12O6 because it's made up of six carbon atoms, 12 hydrogen atoms, and six oxygen atoms. The carbon atoms that are in glucose come from the carbon dioxide molecules, also known as CO2, for the one atom of carbon and two atoms of oxygen. The hydrogen atoms come from the water molecules, also known as H2O, for the two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen. Plants also release oxygen, which we're grateful for, or O2, for the two atoms of oxygen as a waste product during photosynthesis. The oxygen and glucose and some of the oxygen that's released into the air comes from the carbon dioxide and the water molecules because they both have oxygen atoms in their molecules. The rearranging of molecules during photosynthesis happens through a few different steps in both light-dependent and light-independent reactions that you'll learn more about when you're in high school. All plants take carbon dioxide, water, and other nutrients found in soil that are necessary for life, such as nitrogen, sulfur, and phosphorus, and then rearrange, them into, rearrange those atoms into molecules they can use to make up every part of the plant, the leaves, the stems, the flowers, and the fruit. Your body does the same thing when it absorbs nutrients from the food you eat. You eat foods, your body takes the molecules of food apart, and then rearranges them into molecules your body can use, all without you even thinking about it. A final interesting health and wellness connection to your question is that the human body needs vitamins and minerals. We get them through the food we eat, especially fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. Each color of food you eat provides your body with different vitamins and minerals, so it's important to eat a variety of different colored fruits and vegetables. 
The fruits and vegetables get these vitamins and minerals through the soil they grow in, which is why it's so important to have nutrient-rich soil for your garden. The more vitamins and minerals in your garden, the more your food will have, and then the more you'll have after you eat them. Thank you so much for asking a great question. A few students had questions about stories or the English language itself. Hello, my name is Marcus and I'm in sixth grade. My question is, how many English words are there? Hello, my name is Allison Moncrief Brummage and I teach eighth grade humanities. And I love this question. Thank you for it, Marcus. And I know you asked that question because you're a curious person, you and your friends in the sixth grade. And I also suspect that you asked this question because the poet in you is curious. Having known some of your poetry, I was pleased to know that you too are someone who may be interested in the usage and history of words in our English language. To answer your specific question about how many words there are at this moment at use in the English language, from what I understand, there are around 171,000 words currently in use. So says the Oxford English Dictionary. The Oxford English Dictionary is one that we sort of use as the gold standard in the English language, as a dictionary that started in 19th century England, but it should be noted that dictionaries themselves are as old as language is. There are cuneiform tablets, which were dictionaries from uh, 2300 BC. But we do know that words that we use every day also might not exist in the dictionary, which is pretty incredible. So we have dictionaries available to us, and then we also have our lived experience, where words like sus or totes mean something to us that we couldn't necessarily look up in a dictionary. So I like to think of, as a poet, I like to think of language like a flowing river which is changing with every season and changing not only in its volume, but it is also changing the earth around it. It's rolling over stones, widening the banks. And so any language, we're talking today about the English language, is constantly changing and being infused by our experiences, our living, our technology, the changes in the world. So the language is always growing and changing around with us along with us and around us. In fact, I found one statistic which said that over the last 100 years, 185,000 new words have come into the dictionary, which means the dictionary may have reinvented itself in the last 100 years. Along those lines, words are added to the English dictionary every year. So for instance, in 2019, the word Jedi made it into the Oxford English Dictionary. So did whatevs and a personal favorite of mine, chillax. Um, but while words are added to the dictionary, words are also discontinued or seen as archaic, not in use. And some of those words are ones that I found, here's a fun one, hodad, which may have been popular when your parents or grandparents were around. Apparently it means a guy who carries around a surfboard but doesn't actually surf. Uh, or the word snollygoster, which is a word from 19th century England, which has something to do with a person who won an election by fraud. 
This is the sound of a dictionary. I've opened it up, having found it on our kitchen table, where I encourage you to always have a dictionary at hand, to the H section. And I see the word habitat, but I also see a word on this same page, now that I'm poking around, called half, a noun, the high sea or ocean, the deep sea, fishing waters off of the Shetland and Orkney Islands. Half. I never would have known that word half if I hadn't had poked around in the dictionary. So maybe if I can use that word, then it can be validated, it can be understood, it can be alive, and maybe it won't be discontinued from the dictionary. I leave you with that, with some half and a habitat and some ideas about words, Marcus. And I hope that you continue to luxuriate in the rivers of language around you. My name is Vasilis and I'm in kindergarten. My question is, why do folktales usually begin with poor people? Hi, I'm Kara Hames. I teach third grade. Vasilis, this question really got me interested because I don't didn't know the answer to this question, but was excited to learn more about it. So when I started to look into the answer to this question, why do folktales usually begin with poor people, I didn't find a lot of answers. I found a lot of people doing what we do here at Foot all the time, which is making inferences and thinking about why that might be. So because folktales and fairy tales have been around for so long, and we can't ask the authors why they made these choices, we can guess. And some of the reasons that people think poor people are part of fairy tales and folktales is one, there are extremes in fairy tales. So that means there's a good character and there's an evil character. And those two characters are a big part of the story. So being able to have a powerful, rich character and maybe a weaker, poor character made the story more interesting. Another reason why this might be is people who are listening to the stories are going to be able to fall somewhere in the middle. So either you're somebody who maybe is or maybe you have some problems in your life that you can relate to with those characters or maybe you're a little bit more powerful and you have some things that can ha that happen in your life that you can help you relate to those characters. So um, it does help the audience to connect to the story in another way. One student asked a question that sits at the crossroads of technology and photography. So we threw it to Footstaff photographer, communications specialist, Joe Charles. Hi, my name's Anushka. I'm in seventh grade, and my question is, why do lines appear when you take a picture of a screen? Thanks so much for your question, Anushka. I'm Joe Charles, and as Andy mentioned, I'm the communication specialist and photographer here at Foot. So to answer your question, we have to understand two things, how a screen displays an image and how a camera captures an image. Screens display information by turning on and off little lights called pixels. Since the image on a screen can be changed at any time, pixels are constantly changed or refreshed depending on what is being displayed. This is referred to as the refresh rate, which is measured in something called Hertz, spelled H-E-R-T-Z. Some common refresh rates are 60, 70, 144, and 240 Hertz. The number of Hertz is equal to the number of times an image on the screen can be redrawn per second. So a screen that has a refresh rate of 240 Hertz will redraw the image 240 times in one second. The majority of screens aren't powerful enough to change all the pixels at once, though. 
So they change them one line at a time, usually starting at the top of the screen and moving down to the bottom. This change happens so fast, though, that it's not visible to the naked eye. Digital cameras record what they see through a lens on something called an image sensor. The sensor is covered until you press the shutter button, at which point the cover moves out of the way for a specified period of time. Cameras without a physical shutter, like the one on a phone, simply activate the sensor for a set period of time before turning it off. In either case, the time that the sensor is exposed or active for is called the shutter speed. Shutter speeds on a camera can be incredibly fast. The camera I use at foot can open the shutter as fast as 1 4,000th of a second, which, if my math is correct, is 1,500 times faster than the refresh rate of 250 hertz I mentioned earlier. The screen lines you're describing become visible when the shutter speed of the camera is faster than the refresh rate of the screen, as the camera is capturing an image of the screen while it is being refreshed. Another way to visualize what's happening in the photo is to think about a film strip that's being played on a movie projector. If you were to stop the projector at any time, you'd most likely stop the image between frames, seeing part of one image, a line, then part of the next image. To account for this, you can change the shutter speed to match the refresh rate, effectively taking a photo of the screen before or after it's refreshed. This solves the problem in still photography, but to clearly show screens in motion, the TV and film industry has to take a different approach. Since different screens have different and sometimes even variable refresh rates, and different cameras can record at different shutter speeds, Television shows and movies use either fake screens made from a backlit piece of plastic or add in screens digitally after the TV show or movie has been filmed. I hope that helps clarify things for you and helps you with your own photography in the future. Finally, we got a series of questions about foot school itself, from whether we will ever be able to give out snacks again to this one about the relative importance of various subjects. My name is Owen. And I'm in sixth grade, and my question is, do you think humanities is the most important subject taught at school? My name is Elliot Dixon, and I teach eighth grade science. Thanks so much, Owen. That's a really thought-provoking question, and I think the answer is no. So thanks for for that question, and no, I'm just kidding. This this made me think a lot about what we do in education, and I think it's an age-old question of, like, if you have to teach anything, what do you teach? And the answer that we have is a lot of different topics. But I think that schools, maybe this will be controversial, but do a disservice by splitting up content into different subjects. Because I think, when when I really think about it, what we do in every subject, including music, art, PE, drama, math, science, language, we're really talking about opportunities to communicate and how to communicate differently and how to learn how to express yourself. So I think about in humanities, like you asked Owen, you're learning how to write and you're learning how to read someone else's writing and come up with your opinions about that and collaborate with others and express your thoughts and ideas. In science that I, that I teach, you're learning to support theories and use logic and communicate evidence and in math, you're, you're learning the language of the universe. It's a universal language about how we describe different phenomena and use precision. And in PE and art and drama, you're learning to express yourself in different ways and communicate emotion in a lot of different venues, which I think is pretty interesting. So all that to say is your question made me think a lot about what we do and why we do it. And then I think if you look at every single class you take as an opportunity to learn how to communicate in different ways, then you're getting a lot of 
lot out of your classes. So thank you again for that opportunity to think. And I guess my short answer is science. <laughs> Thanks so much, Owen. That's all for this episode. Next time, we're going to flip the script and have teachers ask questions and let our students answer them. Until then, be well and thanks for listening. Foot School Podcasts are a production of The Foot School, an independent school for grades K to 9 in New Haven, Connecticut. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It will help other people find our podcast. Thank you for listening.